And as always on Mondays, alongside me is my good friend Troy. How you doing tonight, man? I'm all right. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Great, because uh, over the weekend, well, I did a lot of things. Uh, somebody picked up the Super NES Classic. So Jonathan and Andrew and I have been tearing that thing up. It's unforgiving. It is it's really unforgiving. But a lot of cool games like The Secret of Mana. Andrew's like, oh, I've heard about this for years, and you can't find the cartridges, and it's on the Super NES Classic, and it's it's like Zelda. It's a, a true hero's journey, really. Oh. Huh. Um, pretty cool. The, of course, Super Mario Bros., like, I, we turned it on. I'm like, yeah, I remember this game to this day. It's imprinted in my memory. All the different levels and secrets, still difficult as hell. Did it take you back decades? It really did. I thought it was, you know, some of this, how South Park talked about the member, member, member. Some of the nostalgia can be bad if you're only looking back and you think everything new and in the present day is stale. But it is fun to be taken back a few decades, back when we grew up with computers. But it was like the Apple computers, the big floppy disk. I actually remember in second grade. Uh, we had a computer class, and the teacher didn't know what to do, so I taught the rest of the class. <laughs> because my dad is a programmer. And so he, he ran me through all that stuff beforehand. But yeah, sensory memories. Super important. It's it's unreal. I mean, I had the same experience when I got this new iPhone. I signed into my Apple account, and music I was listening to five, six years ago is right there exactly how I left it arranged. Oh, man. And it was like going back to what I would listen to every morning as I would clean up the house and things like uh, the B-side of Tattoo You by the Rolling Stones, which has Worried About You and uh, Waiting on a Friend. And that's really where I am in my life. That song, Waiting on a Friend, I don't... He puts it bluntly. I don't need a whore. I don't need no booze. I don't need a virgin priest. I just need someone to talk to. I just need someone to let my feelings out and really I need a friend and it was about sort of Keith and Mick growing up and realizing we've lived this sort of rock star messiah life and it's not fulfilling it's fun but it's not sustainable over the long run it ends up at the end of the day being about the music and the friendships of the band but and I'm like man when I first heard that song I wouldn't have thought of it in that way right but it, I immediately heard it and went wow and it takes me back to friends like, you know, Sean, who I lived with for several years at the house here in Montgomery, what Greg called the sex house. Um, and on my part, there wasn't much sex being had, but uh, that's a whole other topic for another day. But, you know, you mentioned your dad's a programmer, and, you know, my grandfather, Ron, he was very much hip to computers when they were early on. Mm -hmm. He's one of those guys, oh, this is the new trend, I want to jump on it. And it's almost a different language in several different languages that have arisen in our modern era where 
I don't think the vast majority of the population has any grasp of it. I know I don't. On most of what makes the uh, internet and computers run, I have a... You mean programming language? Yeah, exactly. I don't know how most, most of that works. I just take it for granted. A lot of programmers try to make it work, and then they spend hours going through millions of lines or hundreds of thousands of lines of code looking for a typing error, and it's, it's super frustrating. But I've... In the last few years, I've really taken a step back, and we've discovered, and it's through my good friend Dan Sanchez, uh, the work of Joseph Campbell. Danchez, yes. Uh, Joseph Campbell wrote in the 40s. He didn't become big until the 80s when Bill Moyers did a documentary on him. And essentially, Campbell was asked one day by a priest, do you believe in a personal God? He said, no, but I do believe in mystery and uncertainty in that I have experiences, and I've experienced hatred, I've experienced love in all its many different forms, uh, and people before me who have done the living and dying on this earth have had all these experiences, and they've written about it, often in supernatural terms, and we should learn from all of that. Uh, and, I mean, stuff I wrote in college, like um, a healthy and hearty faith, the best friend of that is doubt, that no matter how certain I become in a certain belief or conviction, I don't need to relinquish a strife of doubt. Just, I guess I got it from like the existentialists I used to read all the time. But being willing to, willing to sort of uh, kill an old part of yourself or pummel an old part of yourself in order to find a new beginning and, and grow. And so it's fun, you know, with the Super NES and with like old music to go back. But you realize I'm not the same person. And though it hurt a little bit to change from, you know, growing up and becoming more of an adult, you know, growing into adulthood and you have friends for a few years and they leave. And it feels good when you look back that, okay, I made it through that and I think I'm a better person for it. And that's so much of what Campbell's work is about with the hero's journey and sort of going into the dark cave. Campbell essentially says the cave you fear is exactly what you need. And I think that is uh, spot on. I sent you an essay, and it's in his uh, collection of essays called Myths to Live By. I actually, actually sent you a summary. But it's uh, about science's effect on myth. And essentially the idea is that science and scientific thinking creates new types of knowledge that upset old myth-making. And myths that aren't confined to just Christianity or to the Greek experience, to Western culture. It's myths that have a lot of uh, similarities across the globe going back thousands of years. Myths from disparate peoples, peoples that have had no contact with one another. Right, and so it's around 1492. He marks Columbus as being major, the major turning point, is that Columbus is going out on his voyages still thinking of the old uh, Cosmos, old model of the Earth, like a flat disk, and I guess that's making a comeback some these days. But he's looking still for like the mountain with earthly paradise. He's thinking in those terms, but as Columbus discovers the New World, Magellan circumnavigates the globe. I guess it's Vasco da Gama does the Horn of Africa and reaches India, and you know you get Galileo and his theories, and. With Galileo, you get the perfect example Campbell's getting at is that this new knowledge is challenging the orthodoxy of the church and of myths built over thousands of years. Myths that were used to inform and control. 
inform and control. And it really did give purpose to people's lives, and they still do. Yeah, if they didn't have those myths, it would have been much more chaotic. They could order their lives through these myths. And Campbell discusses that with different types of... This wasn't in the summary that you sent me, by the way. Still extra work. All right. Uh, the different types of myths that occur through different types of society, whether it be a hunter-gatherer society, an agrarian society, a, a sort of pseudo-modern society, going all the way up to a, a, a modern society like we have now. The myths that we have, they're all different, and they're all used to order our lives in particular ways that make survival, if you will, much easier. Well, and it's very much the, the crisis of the modern era is that a lot of people with the new scientific knowledge... Uh, whether it be things like astronomy or psychology, we're starting to say, well, myth can't teach us much anymore. You get folks like Sigmund Freud who say myth is a wholly negative thing. It's a primitive, negative thing. When I say something's a myth, it's completely false, and it's like an insult. He calls it, he calls it a neurosis, Yeah, Freud does. Yeah, that it's a, a public neurosis, mm -hmm. uh, much like maybe a private one. And Freud always whittles things down to, like one's ancestral feelings for mom and one's aggressiveness and and so he thinks myth is a very negative thing but Campbell bases his work off Carl Jung who says no these myths are very much can be a positive thing that they're based in archetypes and probably something about the human psyche and this is why you're seeing all these similarities from disparate peoples going back thousands of years is that there's something to the human personality that's saying you need these myths to help you overcome the next obstacle in your life, to overcome your fears and insecurities. He actually, we, we talked about it last week, he calls it the collective unconscious. Yes. He says that myths and, well, Campbell touches on dreams, but he's, Jung says that myths are a part of this collective unconscious, and we can tap into the collective unconscious to order our lives. And we myths are a vehicle to do so. Yeah, and to order things that we, you know, beginnings and ends that we probably never will see. Well, we didn't see the beginning. Like, why is there anything at all is still a huge question. We desire a way to explain it. Yeah, we want to know the answer. Now, I'm of the type, though, where I've come to, I probably will never know the ultimate beginning or the ultimate end. I'm happy sort of climbing the rungs of the ladder without knowing exactly where I'm going. That you, you don't need to just open up a book, read the first few pages, flip to the end, read the ending. You're probably going to miss a lot if you're only looking for beginnings and endings. That it's the meat, the journey, all the steps in between that's incredibly important. And if you skip out on that journey, you try to abstract your way or you try to find revelations that get you out of doing that journey, you're probably not going to be a happy camper. You're going to miss a lot. I mean, to put it in cliche, stop and smell the roses. And I, I think that's been a big problem in my own life. I don't stop and enjoy the moment. I'm always sort of thinking, oh, I should have done this in the past. And, oh, I'm so anxious about this thing I've got to do in the future. Mm -hmm. Instead of just seeing the road ahead of me and walking towards the goal and knowing where I came from. I think the very essence of faith is knowing your identity and where you come from. And this is where myths are incredibly important. And you see it with people. Ms. Campbell begins this essay with a small kid who sits down and starts talking about the theory of evolution to his mom. They're sitting in this quaint little diner, and the kid says, oh, the teacher told me that the theory of evolution is wrong because of Adam and Eve. And the mom says, well, your teacher's right. 
And Campbell sort of laments, oh, what a mother and a teacher for the 20th century. Campbell's writing this, I think, in the 60s. And the kid comes back with, but this was a scientific paper. But I want to give people their due because I've had arguments with people over the theory of evolution. There's actually a fantastic book I've recommended to folks called The Language of God, written by a gentleman named Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project, um, but he's a devout Catholic. So he, he's very much a believer, but he also is thoroughly convinced of the theory of evolution, that the hypothesis has been backed up by evidence on top of evidence to show, you know, when he says we're a few chromosomes away from a chimpanzee, he actually breaks down in the book, here's the DNA coding. Um, here's maybe the common ancestor. And he, what Collins warns against as a believer is the god of the gaps. That when new scientific theories come along to explain, hey, here's what the world looks like. It's not a flat disk. It's, in fact, a sphere that's rotating on its axis and also rotating around the sun. It, it, yeah, it's a geoid. It bulges in the middle. It's called a geoid. Yes. Yeah, sorry. And you, I'm not a scientist by any means. I just I like to take from science and think of it as... Well, in a way, it has rigorous standards, but it's a myth very much itself. It's, again, trying to explain the world in certain terms. And when those explanations become incredibly convincing, it makes people uncertain about their faith that they've held and their ancestors have held for thousands of years. And Campbell points this out, and I've always felt this way, that that uncertainty should be respected. That you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't want to take away the wisdom of past traditions when you're also finding new explanations for the world. Particularly if you've already learned things from them. If, if you discover something new and you learn something from it, why would you get rid of what you learned? Um, you know, we were, we were raised Catholic. Yeah. And Catholicism has this wonderful ability to be able to interpret things and change interpretations and allow for new sciences. Um, you know, minus a, a couple of really important kickers there. Yes. But with science and the theory of evolution, Catholicism says, cool, I can, I can work with this. You know, let's use the Bible as an inspiration rather than word of law. Right. And there's an example he gives of how Islam was set back in the year 1100, is that Islam in the Arab world was very much ahead of the Western world scientifically, in terms of medicine and mathematics. Hundreds of years. Math medicine, mathematics, science, everything. They were hundreds of years ahead. And then there's this turning back of a return to orthodoxy, that what you're doing is upsetting our beliefs as found in the Quran. It's upsetting our ancient scriptures. So what, what you're doing has to stop. We have to make Quran as its word, is law. Yeah. And anything else that goes against that becomes heresy. Right, and that is such a... It shuts off the ability to change. It shuts off people's minds. It's very hard to argue with an authority um, that is essentially threatening your person and your livelihood. Via faith as well. A, a bedrock, a foundation of how you live your world and view the world. You have faith, and you have someone who becomes a, an arbiter of that faith. And they say, this new thing that you, you think you've found, you can't touch it. You can't learn any from, anything from it. It's heresy. All you need is this book. Right. You can't talk about it. Like, and this is, yeah. And it's when people impose these limits that I think it's a, it becomes a sort of bad faith. It's 
more I'm living out this role that has always been rather than searching the wisdom. And I get it. Why folks are very anxious about maybe some science upsetting some of the tenets of their faith. And again, this is not picking on Christianity. I think actually Christianity has adapted beautifully to uh, the scientific revolution in many ways. I think it has. Uh, well, you mentioned the Catholic Church. A lot of a Catholic priest, I mean, wasn't it a Catholic priest who first hypothesized the Big Bang? I mean, there are, there's a long tradition of Catholic theologians, and I think the Reformation, excuse me, pardon me, to the Catholics who raised me, probably was in order and needed to happen. But I think Christianity has gone through that sort of enlightenment stage and reached that point of what we call classical liberalism that said, no, tolerance is key, that we'll have our different denominations, we'll have our theological debates, but we're not going to impose, like, say, the Islamic authorities did in 1100, this orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. We're going to allow you to choose whatever orthodoxy you wish or have none at all and sort of figure it out uh, along the way. But Campbell ends by saying that the only thing we know is we know nothing that's Hmm. basically what he says and if you look at a lot of biblical heroes they ask why am I being chosen I'm not the one who should be chosen here Um, if you look at Socrates he says I'm wise because I know I know nothing I mean if you look at a lot of western heroes that have molded our perspective of the world they start with that basic humility that we really don't know. Now, with this uncertainty, you also get science reaching points where it becomes incredibly destructive. We talked last week about atomic weapons, thermonuclear weapons, how it really changed the game, that you have Oppenheimer Oppenheimer quoting Vishnu, the destroyer of worlds. It's the only thing that can make sense of this thing he's feeling, like this power that he's helped foster on the earth, and it's that creation that, yes, and I think there are a lot of people of faith who are right on this, especially with things like genetic engineering, like with CRISPR we talked about last week, that it could go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. It could be dystopia, essentially. Uh, and, and we have plenty of warnings in our popular culture, whether it's Blade Runner or, what is it, Mad Max. I mean, there's all sorts of examples of how things could go very, very wrong. But it could also uh, go right, And so it's sort of this balancing act of, okay, we don't know anything. We're going to try to find the wisdom and the things and the traditions that should be kept going. And these things may have happened for a reason. And we should learn from the experiences of our elders in order to have a genuine faith in our ability to create prosperous things and, um, well, endure the evil we might bring on the world. And there's this, well, story that Campbell ends this essay called The Effect of Myth, The Impact of Science on Myth, where he says, and this is quoting Campbell, when I was in India in the winter of 1954, in conversation with an Indian gentleman of just about my own age, he asked with a certain air of distance, after we exchanged formalities, what are you Western scholars now saying about the dating of the Vedas? The Vedas, you must know, are the counterparts for the Hindu of the Torah for the Jew. Like these are his scriptures of the most ancient date and therefore of the highest revelation. Well, I answered, the dating of the Vedas has lately been reduced and is being assigned, I believe, to something like, say, 1500 or 1000 B.C. As you probably know, I added, there have been 
found in India itself the remains of an earlier civilization than the Vedic. Yes, said the Indian gentleman, but not testily, firmly, with an air of untroubled assurance. I know, but as an orthodox Hindu, I cannot believe that there is anything in the universe earlier than the Vedas. And he meant that, writes Campbell. Okay, I said, then why did you ask? But this is where I think Joseph Campbell strikes the right balance. He says, to give old India, however it's due, let me conclude with a fragment of a Hindu myth that to me seems to have captured in a particularly apt image the whole sense of such a movement as we today are facing at this critical juncture of our general human history. It tells the story of a time at the very start of the history of the universe when the gods and their chief enemies, the anti-gods, were engaged in one of their eternal wars. They decided this time to conclude a truce and in cooperation to churn the milky ocean, the universal sea, for its butter of immortality. Now, you mentioned, Troy, before I keep going this story, that you've always called this uncertainty. The only thing we know is we don't know and we're doing the best we can as an anchor point. But to, to clarify, we're all looking for an anchor point. Yes. Because if we strive to meaning, in my opinion, there's something called the anxiety of meaning. It's the anxiety of how we get meaning. If we don't know what means things to us, if we don't know what's important to us, we can be lost. And this anxiety that I'm talking about is the desire to feel a part of something, to feel wanted, to feel understanding, to have a place in the world that's not succumbing to the questions of science that right. we can't answer yet with science. Like, why are we here? Is there an after? What was before? And I'm not talking in a celestial sense. I'm talking in a sort of a soul sense, a human sense. Yeah. And so for me, when I was asking these questions, I didn't have answers to them. I couldn't find any answers. And that's where I learned about what I call the anxiety of meaning. And what that brought me to was looking for an anchor point. It was looking for what I can subscribe to that would give me meaning. I went through faith. I went through policy and politics, politics yeah. economics, statistics, mathematics, science, philosophy, especially philosophy, since I've been hanging out with you for so long. <laughs> Tons of crazy, awesome stuff. And each one, I never really found anything that I could wholly give myself to. And so, through a lot of wear and tear on my heart and soul, I learned that I could take little bits and pieces of all of those things but i noticed that in other people they would give themselves wholly to something right be it faith be it libertarianism yeah the left the right sports movies art science they could give themselves to these things and it would give them meaning and it would shape their worldview and how they saw things and how they interacted with others and yes, it changed them, but they had meaning. And for a long time, I didn't have that. And so I just took bits and pieces of things. And now, I mean, I'm here. I exist. Have I found what I think is my meaning? I don't think so. But at the same time, and Campbell talks about this, we must always strive for the truth. Is truth the goal or is striving in itself the goal? 
Exactly. I tend to think it's the striving. People ask me what my simplest explanation of my faith is. It is that the truth of our lives is found in sort of the myth-making and our fictions. The narratives we tell about ourselves, our inner world, and the narratives we tell about the wide world, the outer world. And how we assemble our language is incredibly important. And we can learn how to assemble that by learning from what people long before us have said. And we can also learn by essentially making stuff up, having fun. Play is incredibly important. Important Taking a chance, going into the, the dark cave and seeing what comes out of it, I think is also uh, incredibly important. It's sort of a balance between the two. Just to add to that point, you were talking about the explorers in 1492 going yeah. around the world. If you look on old maps you'll see sea dragons or monsters. And what that symbolized to people at the time when they could, well, interpret those maps is it would mean here be monsters, which means it was an unknown and unexplored region. So they attributed fear to that, the fear of the cave that we talked about on this hero's journey to venture forth into the unknown and come back with new understanding. I think here be monsters is just a really neat way of showing that to embrace that fear to go out to explore come back with new understanding so i want to go back to uh this old hindu or fragment of a hindu myth campbell sharing at the end of this essay so we have the gods and the anti-gods who are fighting one of their eternal battles but they decide oh, let's cooperate for once damn it and they conclude that they should churn the milky ocean the universal sea for its butter of immortality. So they took for their anchor point, or their churning spindle, the cosmic mountain, which is essentially the Vedic version of Dante's mountain of purgatory, that in-between place. And for their twirling cord, they wrapped the cosmic serpent around it. Then with the gods pulling at the head and the anti-gods pulling at the tail, they caused the cosmic mountain to whirl. And they had been churning thus for a thousand years when a great black cloud of absolutely poisonous smoke came up out of the waters. And the churning had to stop. It reminds me of what we talked about last week so much. They had broken through to an unprecedented source of power. And what they were experiencing first were its negative lethal effects. If the work they were to continue... Some one of them was going to have to swallow and absorb the poisonous cloud. And, as all knew, there was but one who would be capable of such an act, namely the archetypal god of yoga, Shiva, a frightening demonic figure. He took that entire poison cloud into his begging bowl and at one gulp drank it down, holding it by yoga at the level of his throat, where it turned the whole throat blue. And there he's been ever, forever known as Blue Throat. Then, when that wonderful deed had been accomplished, all the other gods and the anti-gods returned to their common labor. And they churned and they churned, and they went right on tirelessly churning, until, lo, a number of wonderful benefits began coming out of the cosmic sea. The moon, the sun, an elephant with eight trunks came up, a glorious steed, certain medicines, and yes, at last, a great radiant vessel filled with the ambrosial butter. This old Indian myth, writes Joseph Campbell, I offer as a parable for our world today, as an exhortation to press on with a work beyond fear. 
Do you have the year that he wrote that? Because it, it sounds suspiciously like he actually is talking about nuclear power in a way. I think this is 60-something, 60 64. It might be after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right in the middle of the Cold War. Right in the middle of the height of the Cold War. It's also interesting to me, that, by the way, that that scripture that you just read is, is beautiful. Yeah. But it's interesting to me how it's written and the words and descriptions used. They would mean a lot more, I would imagine, to Indian and Hindu people. Yes. But the, the imagery that's evoked with the butter and the cow, where the butter comes from, is, is fascinating to me. That we filter our own stories through our own human perception. And in the process of doing so, we create a feedback loop that generates meaning and structure for ourselves. Yeah, beyond just the literal description of that's a cow, mm-hmm. that's butter. That you can take these literal things that order your life and you can take it into a whole other realm of, oh, symbolic meaning. Right. What the these the, things the imagery beyond? evokes its own meaning, yeah. which in turn evokes its own thoughts, which creates sort of an ontological basis for viewing the world. Well, and it's... Um, it's something that we're going to discuss after this break of, well, what if this is going to start happening with AI? Baby steps right now. But I think there is that, uh, that idea that if you put certain pressures and certain limits on artificial intelligence and teach it how to create, it does start to create. In fact, that's not hypothetical. It's already happening. Scary, but we have to keep churning well, without our fear. And I have to thank Emily Hayes. Because she gave me David Bowie's Changes on vinyl. Oh, man. And this is Gene Genie. The album of the day is Changes. Fitting for our subject tonight. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Mondays with Troy. We'll be right back after this break. A go go and everything tastes nice. Poor little greenie. Joey Clark. Get back on Joey Clark. Oh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour, Mondays with Troy edition. Good friend Troy sitting alongside me. Really happy to be here, man. Yeah, this is um, this is fantastic. Still don't this song. Rest in peace, brother. Rest in peace, David. Every time I thought I got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. So I turn myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse How the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strange changes Don't want to be a richer man And that's really what we're talking about and what I want the show to be about. My own personal changes, but bigger changes. Changes that might be beyond our understanding. I think we're very much caught in that sort of historical moment. 
I mean, Campbell's, most of his stuff's written in the 40s. Those speeches, what I just pulled from, is from the 60s. Like I said earlier, he hit it big when Bill Moyers did a whole documentary on him. You can, it was like a year after he died, too. Yeah, you can buy the documentary on DVD, The Power of Myth. Um, and they're worthwhile to uh, study and read. And um, Because the guy sort of takes to everything that's happened in myth. And I'm sure he had some blind spots. That there's work probably still to be done. But when you can find all these similarities from all sorts of different peoples, and you don't say, aha, that means you're probably all wrong. That's not... It's not the approach I want to take. It's that when you see the majesty of science, like when you look through the Hubble and you see how wide the universe is, how many galaxies that look just like a star, but really it's a galaxy just like ours that we're a part of, and how vast everything is. You could take away from that, oh, it's meaningless, we're just a flea on a spinning wheel or whatever, but... No, there's this guy who, a deist, who I saw debating Christopher Hitchens, who said that don't confuse the center of something with the most important. That just because it's not the center of the universe doesn't mean it's not important. Right. And that meaning comes in mysterious ways. And in fact, if you look at his meaning as this interconnectedness that you can find meaning in the most mundane, in the most tragic, in the most joyous. That you find meaning isn't, oh, let's put evil and terrible things over here and good and wonderful things over here. They're actually always playing off one another. And it's actually what got me through tough times with um, my mom passing. Is it wasn't I hadn't discovered Joseph Campbell, but I was reading a lot of um, Nietzsche and William Blake, who was a crazy guy. He was like in the early 1800s, he was all about free love, but he was just a devout believer, but in a funky way about the, the Christianity. And his Auguries of Innocence is a poem I go back to all the time. Essentially says man was made for joy and woe. It's right that it should be so. And, and when, when we know this safely through the world we go, uh, under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. And I sat there and I thought to myself, why am I so sad? And why am I feel so, you know, why? That, t- that very dangerous question. If you just look up and go, why? And you're not looking for any sort of answer. You're just in your anguish and angst. It's very dangerous. But I realized that I was so blessed, so lucky to have had the mother I had. And no matter what I do with my own life, if I fail or I succeed and flourish or what somebody does to me, whatever happens with the world, the fact that she was my mom will always be true. And it gave me such a deep, profound sense of peace when that sunk in. And it's still sad to this day. I'm getting tears in my eyes right now. But it's, it's not sore anymore in the sense of there's a reason for the tears, and it's worth it. Right. Um, and it's, I feel comfortable sharing that. It's very personal to me. Because I want to share some of that solace. If somebody can maybe find it in their own way, fair enough. But that's what gave me solace, is that everything has a purpose. Everything is tied together and balances uh, itself out. And that love can sometimes be all-consuming. And that it's the... uh, There's a version of Tristan and Isolde, where if this is eternal damnation, then I'm happy to be here. That if I'm going to have to burn with this pain because of this terrible love affair, 
uh, it's worth it. And that's how my mom, she was asked by a friend of hers, what's it like having boys? She said, it's like a love affair that never ends. And it was, she was uh, damn right. And so when I go back, and that's what sent me on this journey, kind of thinking about the narratives we tell ourselves. And now that I've found Joseph Campbell in this mythology, all this heavy lifting's been done. It's like, wow, I can already read these answers this guy put together. And I might not agree with every angle he takes. Right. But it is remarkable stuff, and it makes you, it helps you make sense of uh, things in life. For instance, we both, and we don't have to go, I don't want to go into the dirty details, but we both have gone through, let's say, love affairs that were romantic in a sense that left us decimated. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And he talks about how there's this one version of the creation story from an Abrahamic uh, tradition. The, it's Islam, but it's one version of Islam in Persia. I don't think it's full Shiite, but it's an old telling of how the devil ended up in hell. And, you know, usually the idea is the devil rebels and he's kicked out. And this story gives more information on why he rebels. He says that at first God creates the angels and they are told to love God only and bow only to God. And then God creates human beings. And God tells the angels to bow to them. The devil is so in love with God and the old ways of only bowing to God, he refuses to bow to human beings. And he's thus kicked out, and the only thing that sustains him is that memory of that love. And it's this theme of an all-consuming love, where it's almost like he had died. And Campbell gets into how it, it really is like a part of you dies, and you have to figure out. As he puts it, it's like this fulfillment of, oh, my destiny's being fulfilled. And then when that's upset, you're like, oh, crap. How am I going to find my destiny again? Right. And, and he, he's very wise in his treatment of love. He says that, you know, a lot of theologians treat love as sort of you either have agape, this sort of universal self, selfless love that's all-encompassing and was divine in nature. You get eros, it's lust and of the body, and it's all-consuming. You get fraternity, too. But he says that in the high Middle Ages, there were these troubadours. And essentially, things are being run by autocratic theocracies and different feudal uh, kings and orders. Essentially, governments are based on the laws in heaven. That's the theory. And so marriage was very much a family thing. It's about maintaining dynasties and security. It wasn't our sort of notion of romantic love. And so any sort of feeling of romance outside of marriage was very repressed and looked down upon until these poets called troubadours come along and they start talking about love in a particular way. They don't use eros, they don't use agape, they use amour. And they describe amour as the eyes seeing someone and informing the heart. And it isn't a complete filled with lust and you just want somebody for sex and it's not universal uh, sort of selfless love. In, in ways, eros is this sort of universal thing. It's the desire of all men to have sex with all women and vice versa. Agape is the love for everybody beyond their station. And even if that enemy across the battlefield is my enemy now, I still have this understanding that he's just a person like me. He says, no, amour is loving that person, not in a universal sense, but because they are that person. And it, it comes out of, it's a new creation 
a new way of talking about love in that time period that has very much influenced our time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've sat back and went, wow, I wish I had read some of this stuff when I was going through the heartbreak I was going through. Like, it helps explain, wow, look how many men and women throughout history, thousands of years of human history have gone through the same emotions, though they're in a completely different society. Again, it's a way of finding solace, finding your identity, where you came from. And I, I think it's incredibly important to keep going on this, uh, this journey. But I worry sometimes we lose the sense of uh, bearing witness. It's a teacher at Auburn, I've talked about a bunch, Marie Jardine. It, you know, when we get into, like, say, the Internet and social media, people don't interact with one another in the same way like you and I, I think, are interacting right now. Like, I think we disagree a little bit on net neutrality. But we would sit here and we'd hash it out and be like, whatever, we're still best friends. Online, if you write a whole paragraph saying, here's why you're wrong, you stupid idiot, you don't get that face-to-face. You don't get the body language. You don't get the um, the humanity of it. It becomes sort of this abstract, only mind contest of wits. Contest of wits, contest of egos, who's got the stronger ego whose personality can dictate the the way the conversation is going to go, or the scope or the focus of the conversation. Yeah, it's a mess. It is. It's a complete mess. And people get, I think, it's been talked about, right, like a dopamine hit off it. Like, well, how many likes did I get on this post? Uh, how many people who are responding? Am I getting positive? And they also feel this anguish. And I've felt it. Like you get into a, a negative interaction with somebody, and you really... You think the other person's acting like an a-hole. You look at yourself in the mirror and go, damn, I was acting like an a-hole, too. It eats you up. And it, it eats you up for a whole day, if not longer. It's terrible. It's, and it's awful because you don't even, hardly half the time, you don't even know the person. You're like, why am I, why am I putting myself through the ringer like this? So you no longer are on social media, and it's, it's a very good thing. Well, all of those dopamine hits, or the lack thereof, or all of the negativity—I don't, I don't see it. I don't have it. It's not in my life. Initially, when I got rid of it, I almost went through withdrawals in the sense that I was like, "Oh man, I, I'm, I can't catch up on what everybody's doing." Right? You know, who's selling this body wrap, for example? Not that that was ever important <laughs> to me, but I don't get to see pictures of people having children or getting married. Does that part suck? Yes. But I also don't get all the hot takes. <laughs> all the fresh political scoops. All the sports. I don't get any of it. And that weight that's off my shoulders of no longer being connected in that sense is worth more than ever being connected in that way. Well, and one way I'm not connected is, um, is gaming, especially like first-person shooters. Like you and Andrew and Aaron, you guys have continued to talk to Jonathan. You all have continued to talk to each other for years because you all play the same games. You've got little headsets, microphones. Mm-hmm. Let's go on this mission together, boys. Let's, and even the folks from a different era might go, oh, that's so shallow. Or No, it's not. You get to go on this heroic journey with your friends in this virtual world. Mm-hmm. You get to share ideas and create your own memes, if you will. These shared experiences, and you could go back and talk about stories and the way you've lived your life and 
tell jokes and laugh and have fun or get super frustrated when you keep dying on a particular spot and you won't let the game beat you and then you finally do it and there's that sense of relief and reward. It's great. Well, and I think our culture in many ways is... um is healthier than Campbell is letting on when he was writing in the 60s. So why uh, so much depression? Why so many murders? If you actually look at the long run, especially since he was writing, all that's down. By the numbers, anyway. Yeah, by the numbers. I mean, people have their own lives and things can happen. But by the numbers, people are getting richer. Abject poverty has been cut in half in the last century. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more opportunities, more equality for folks who have been historically oppressed, minorities and women. I mean, there's just generally been a betterment. And I was telling you off air, Campbell looks back at old mythology and said most of human history is dominated by war myths. The idea that war is a challenge that makes people better. And occasionally you'll get peace myths that there can be a perpetual peace, but they're often life-negating. They're negative, yeah. That, you know, all your desire is bad, and your idea of, of everything you want to do, the world's going to come to an end anytime anyway, so just give all up your possessions, your uh, familial bonds, um, and... Change your identity. Yeah, to this sort of coming of the end. And in some ways, there's a theory. I didn't think I was going to bring this up, and we only have three minutes here. But the new Star Wars movie, I think, is going to address this. That the reason the Jedi must end is because the Jedi, for too long, did exactly that. They gave up all sort of earthly possessions and pride, other than maybe their saber. They gave up you know, love and relationships And it's that giving up of love and relationships and repressing those desires that led the Jedi, in the case of Anakin Skywalker, going to the dark side. And that what... It's not about how many Siths there are in the galaxy and how many Jedi there are. There are two Siths. Right. The rule of two. Just the... Always two. Yeah. Yeah. But the point isn't a balance there. The point is having a balance within yourself. There are a lot of people Mm -hmm. guessing that Rey is going to find that balance within herself. Well, in that trailer, and I know we were going to talk about the Infinity War trailer. Oh, that looks so awesome. We didn't get to it, so we'll come back to that because it's incredible and it makes me emotional in all the right ways. But in the Star Wars trailer, you see her open a book. The emblem on that book is what a lot of people like to call the gray side of the Force. It's in between the dark side and the light side. Mm -hmm. And the knowledge therein... They've only barely tapped into it in the other Star Wars shows out there. But I think that's what's going to be the fascinating part and probably will address the very thing that you brought up. Well, and that's where myths in our modern day are being made. George Lucas is heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell. Heavily. Um, I think you look at Marvel and, you know, comic book writers, and they've built up a mythology, essentially, in our midst. I mean, Captain America literally is the hero's journey. Yeah. I mean, in all different ways uh, that these different heroes come at these the hero's journey. Superman has his own. Captain America definitely uh, fulfills that. I, and I'm incredibly excited that folks don't look at, say, this new Infinity War movie coming out as a form of escapism. If that's how you want to look at it, fine. But I think there is some weight 
to like, and we'll have to get into the whole backstory of Thanos. I should have brought that up with me talking about Troubadour's concept of amour and love, is that Thanos really is consumed by a love for a certain something. And where he, as a child, maybe wasn't going to be consumed by that, but he's sort of led in that direction by the people, the society he's around. And it's incredible storytelling storytelling that type taps into archetypal uh, motifs that have been with human beings since the beginning. And it's also something Campbell talks about is that uh, isn't, oh, human beings found leisure when they created agriculture and then they started making myths. So these myths were there from the beginning. Every archaeological dig, we're finding myth-making right there. Mm-hmm. And that it probably is what propels people to do things. It's not that people get leisure, then they create. And it's it, there's also a bunch of myths that we no longer have that only survive through oral tradition. Yes. But I would imagine many of them tell similar stories. Well, Troy, good show. Good show, Joey. That was a great one. Thank you for listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'll be back tomorrow night. Sarah Thornton from the Cloverdale Playhouse and talk about her life and career.